0: This podcast is brought to you by Intel v. Pro.
1: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On August 19th, The Washington Post featured an interview with presidential candidate Senator Kirsten Gillibrand as she continues her push to qualify for the fall Democratic presidential debates. She discussed her views on gun control, climate change, and her strategy
0: to break through the crowded field. Let's listen. Robert Costa, political reporter here at the Washington Post. Really appreciate you taking the time, Senator Gillibrand. Busy on the campaign trail. You were in Missouri yesterday, heading to the early states this week. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. We're a few days, few weeks before Labor Day, and you are struggling in the polls, both nationally and in early states. What's your path ahead?
1: So I'm really proud of where our campaign is. Uh, We just had our first qualifying poll, and I expect to get the rest that I need in the next few weeks um, because we're leading the debate on a lot of important national issues. Yesterday, as you said, I was in Missouri because what we've seen over the last year and a half by President Trump is an all-out assault on women's reproductive freedom, and we went to the front lines to talk about what does attack on women's reproductive rights mean for women. Uh, it's a healthcare issue where they don't have the ability to make their own decisions about when they're having children, how many children they're having, under what circumstances. It's an issue of economics, not having access to the health care that they desperately need, meaning that disproportionate harm will fall to women who don't have enough money to travel out of state, uh, to low-income women. That's why the Hyde Amendment matters so much. Um, and issues of just basic human rights that you're telling women they can't have agency over their own bodies to make these very hard decisions. So we've been leading the debate on women's reproductive freedom. I also went to the front lines of Georgia. We've been leading the debate on a family bill of rights, uh, why national paid leave matters, why affordable daycare, universal pre-K matter, why equal pay for equal work matters. Uh, and making sure no matter who you are or where you love or who you uh, or, or where you live or who you love, you can actually access um, f- family rights like national paid leave and um, adopting children. So. Despite all that, I think it's really important that my voice is heard on the national stage so we can talk about these issues, Uh, and it's why I hope your viewers go to KirstenGillibrand.com and send a dollar so I make the next debate stage.
0: So despite all the things you've laid out and you represent a major state, you've struggled to get attention and traction. Why do you think that is?
1: You know, I feel that... um, This is an opportunity for Democrats to really see what do we stand for as a party, uh, to lift up voices that aren't being heard. Um, One of the things that I'm most proud of is I'm leading the debate on issues like getting money out of politics. And I think my voice needs to be on the next debate stage. But I think these rules that we have for the DNC are new and most people aren't aware of them. To get to the debate stage, I need to do two things. I need to have 130,000 individual supporters and I'm just over 110,000, so I'm hoping that everyone here sends a dollar so I can make the debate stage. Um, And second, uh, you need to have the national polls. And it's very early, so having enough national polls is accruing uh, to those who do have very high name recognition. I will- Do those rules make sense? They're not my rules. My rules are just, I have to follow them. I have to actually meet these goals And I believe in the grassroots. I believe that every person in this room, every person watching, that their voice actually matters. They may not realize it matters today, but it does. And so that's why I'm here speaking to all your listeners and viewers to say your voice matters today. And if you want issues of reproductive rights, of LGBTQ equality, of money out of politics, on that debate stage, uh, I hope you will agree that my voice is needed.
0: Will you make that debate stage in Houston?
1: I believe I will. And I'm very excited to be there.
0: How close are you?
1: Very. (laughs) But I need help, so I I have to ask uh, your viewers to help, to go to KirstenGillibrand.com.
0: They're aware of the website by now.
1: Well, you keep asking me, so I keep telling them. This is how I get there.
0: Leaving that aside, you're trying to get on the stage. If you don't make the stage, will you gonna say... i have
1: got to make the stage. you've got to make the stage.
0: If a candidate doesn't make the Houston debate stage, if a candidate doesn't make the stage, should they reconsider their campaign?
1: It's up to them. It's up to every candidate to decide what their campaign looks like, uh, why they're running, what they want to accomplish. I also have a very different experience than most of the other candidates. Uh, coming from a blue state... Um, there's a false debate in the party right now. Either you have to be a uber-progressive, who can inspire the base, or you have to be a moderate who wins those red and purple areas. I believe you have to do both, and my candidacy is both. Uh, not only do I lead on women's rights and gay rights and clean air and clean water and will pass a Green New Deal, but I actually know how to do it. I know how to bring people together, Democrats and Republicans, on a bipartisan basis. I've passed big legislation as a US senator. Don't ask, don't tell, repeal. The 9-11 health bill, I just made it permanent a couple weeks ago, so our first responders have healthcare and compensation for the rest of their lives. Even in the last Congress, I passed 18 bills, all of which President Trump signed into law, even though he doesn't know he signed it into law. But he did. Um, So I actually get a lot done, but even more important is this electability. Uh, I win in the red places and purple places in New York on a higher margin than anyone ever before. I win higher margins than Hillary, than President Obama, than any person who's ever run for Senate or um, governor, at 72% is my highest vote threshold. So I can win places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, which are gonna be necessary for the general election. Where do you
0: fit, Senator? You say you don't need to be just moderate or just a liberal. You need to be both. Where do you fit in that spectrum? Yeah, Many so really I am at fit. the
1: forefront of a lot of our progressive issues. I actually know how to pass a Green New Deal. I know all the parts of it that are already bipartisan that I've been working on for a decade. I know that you have to put a price on carbon to use market forces to actually address global climate change, but I know how to find the Republicans to do it on a bipartisan basis. I'm effective in the Senate. So you need somebody who's both forefront of big ideas, women's rights, gay rights, clean air, clean water, making sure we do not compromise our values, but knowing how to find the Republicans that will work with you. When we repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, we didn't do it by watering down the bill. We did it by finding those brave enough Republicans to help lead the way. We had the seven we needed. I had to work with Democrats. There were Democrats who said to me, Kirsten, why are you doing this now? It's not convenient. And I had to look them in the eye and say, when are civil rights ever convenient? You do it now because it's the right thing to do. So I know how to marshal Democrats and Republicans to govern and get things done, which is what everybody needs. So I am a progressive, but knows how to find the common ground to do things on a bipartisan basis.
0: Speaking about questions of duty and timing, should Chairman Nadler introduce articles of impeachment this fall?
1: My view is yes, because I believe that we have a responsibility. Uh, We have a responsibility as Congress to provide oversight and accountability over the executive branch when there are such serious allegations of wrongdoing. The Mueller report is detailed. It has multiple serious factual analyses of obstruction of justice. Uh, Robert Mueller said to us, if he could have exonerated the president, he would have. He also said to us quite clearly he did not believe he had the legal basis um, to indict. So I think he really laid out that report that it's your job, Congress, to now uh, go through the allegations, go through the facts, lift it up for the American people so we know what took place. I think you need to be in impeachment proceedings to guarantee getting the testimony of McGahn, uh as well as bar which i think are essential given all the allegations in the report uh and president trump continues to obstruct that so i think it's necessary i do understand the importance of what speaker pelosi has put forward that we want the american people to know our agenda and she's done that. Her first hundred days were impressive, focusing on ethics reform, voting rights, getting money out of politics, economic issues, job training issues, how to revitalize a rural economies. She's on it. I do think, though, that we have the obligation to do both at the same time.
0: You went after Vice President Biden at a recent debate about his op-ed from years ago. But on policy, what are your key differences with him? He's leading the polls.
1: I don't know, that was the question that I asked. So the question that I asked was, um, he wrote this op-ed a long time ago where he said some pretty stark things even for that time. He said that a parent working outside the home was uh, resulting in the deterioration of the family. Quotes. Uh, He said that a parent working outside the home um, was avoiding responsibility, quote, end quote. So as a woman who's worked outside the home her whole life, as a woman who had two sons and had access to affordable, high-quality daycare at the time, I wanted to know specifically what did you mean when you wrote those things? Did you think that me as a member of Congress, only the sixth woman to ever have a child while serving in Congress, was somehow undermining the family or deteriorating the family or I was avoiding responsibilities? So I very respectfully just asked, what did you mean when you wrote it? and he gets to believe it today. We didn't have that conversation. But let me explain why this matters so much to me personally. Not only did my grandmother work outside the home uh, a very long time ago uh, because she was, it was important to feed her family, but my mother worked outside the home. Uh, and so I want to know why he believed they were somehow deteriorating the family. They're my role models. It's why I'm running for president of the United States. It's why I believe instead of a misogynist in the White House, we need a working mom. It's why I have led on these issues of getting, making sure women can have access, and men, making sure all people can have access to paid family leave. It's why I've led on making affordable daycare and universal pre-K a cornerstone of my presidential campaign. It's why I believe in equal pay for equal work. So the question's a legitimate question. Did you believe it then and do you believe it today? Because if you do, the problem is, will you lead on those issues? And what's changed is not that I'm running for president. What's changed is that he's running for president. And when you've written those words and said something so far out of step with our party, I just need to know that you don't believe it anymore. And that's a legitimate question.
0: Legitimate question from your point of view. And we've seen your criticism him on that op-ed front and on that issue, but broadly... Do you have any policy differences with Vice President Biden?
1: I don't know. That's why I, but, asked. I mean,
0: On foreign policy, economic policy?
1: Well, certainly on trade. Um, I think NAFTA has been a disaster for this country in places like upstate New York, even Long Island, in places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. When you sign on to a bad trade deal that is a giveaway to corporate interests, it harms us. Um, I think NAFTA 2.0 under President Trump has harmed us. I think President Trump's bad trade deal is a giveaway to drug companies in Mexico. Locking in higher profits than they would ever be entitled to ever uh, is a giveaway. That's what's wrong with some of our trade agreements. Um, I did not support uh, TPP. TPP. Uh, specifically the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because there were locked-in guarantees for multinational companies where they would have more power than a local government who is trying to protect our air and our water. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine that a country is trying to say, this particular byproduct of this manufacturer causes cancer. We don't want it in our air and water, and we want to have a litigation against a company, a multinational company that's trying to pollute our community. Under that TPP agreement, they didn't have the right to do that. That's outrageous. So I just had a, a different view on trade from Vice President Biden and, and others who are running because I really cannot support bad trade agreements that are giveaways and to And Medicare for all. You
0: support Medicare for all? Yeah. Vice President Biden supports a public option on top of President Obama's health care law. Republicans are attacking Medicare for all. as something that would take away private insurance. If you're the Democratic nominee, how do you fight? that argument from the right?
1: On Medicare for All? It's easy. So back to the first thing I told you about me. I'm different than most candidates that are running for president right now because I have a sensibility and an understanding about how people who live in these rural red places uh, who are Republicans see the world. Um, I hate to admit this fact, but I have uncles who voted for Trump. (sighs) Anyway, back to... So um, so I know, I know what's going on in their minds. So when I ran for Congress in 2005, I actually ran on Medicare for All. And let me tell you how I got there. When I was traveling around my congressional district, this was pre-Obamacare, people were being dropped their coverage because of pre-existing conditions. Their insurance company, charging too much money, their copays pays were too high, their deductibles were too high. They couldn't afford it and it's a life or death issue. Every issue that the American people care about are kitchen table issues. The issues that they struggle with every night that they can't get sleep over that they're worried about. It's when their child is sick and they don't know how they're actually gonna pay for the treatment they need. I know what this feels like as a mom to have an anxiety about a child. When I saw that Theo as a toddler, had an an, an allergic reaction to eggs, his hands turned red, straight up his arm, he touched his eye, face blew up. I literally ran to the shower, doused him in water, gave him a Benadryl, rushed to the emergency room. I was afraid his throat would close. The one thing I was not afraid of is I had an insurance card in my wallet. I have a credit card in my wallet. Imagine every mother Or father who is rushing to the emergency room who has no security and knowledge that they can buy whatever health care their child needs to save their life. That's the reality for people today. It was the reality for people in 2005. So I said to my district, how would you feel if you could buy into Medicare at a price you can afford? four or five percent of income. No matter what, it's always there for you. It's always there for you. They loved it. This is a two to one Republican district. I promise you, if I'm president, I can go to anywhere in this country and say, Why not have a not-for-profit public option that competes with your insurer who keeps charging you too much money? Why do you think a for-profit company cares about whether you get access to the medicine you need or that second day in the hospital or that treatment that costs too much money? They don't. They're for-profit companies. They have an obligation to their shareholder, not to you. That's how the economy works. That's how for-profit companies work. It's their obligation. And so I could very sensibly say to them, let's at least have a not-for-profit public option in Medicare that anyone can buy into. They liked it then, they would like it today. I can take that to Republican members of Congress and say, let's just try it and see how it works. It will work. Now. Before you build on Medicare for all the super smart people in the room who know a lot about healthcare, you're gonna need to fix it. It's gonna have to actually cover all the things families will need. It's gonna have to cover vision and dental and hearing, all the things that people have to buy extra insurance to get, so make it work. Second, make sure the reimbursement rates to the hospital or the provider actually covers cost. Those two changes to Medicare, you can build on. Let people buy in, give them five years, right? Create a transition period, which is the part I wrote into Senator Sanders' bill, because this is necessary. Let people buy in over four or five years. See how many people buy in. I wouldn't be surprised if it's 60, 70, 80, maybe 90% of Americans, because less, more than 90% of Americans earn $100,000 or less. So just do the math. Would you like to have access to all the health care you need at $4,000 a year?
0: You mentioned your uncle, Senator. You'd him, want it. Who supported President Trump in upstate mm. New York.
1: I've not spoken to them about it, so I cannot tell you why. I, I'm still angry. And I didn't find out from them, by the way. I found out from my cousin. And because she was at an event with me, She's like, well, you know, I'm talking to my dad about it. I was like, what? And she tells me this. I said, that can't be true. They knew how much I loved Hillary. That can't be true. But yes.
0: Well, you used to be the U.S. representative for that area of New York, and you had to persuade those voters to support you. Yeah. Now you represent the whole state of New York. You're running to be president of the United States. Yep. How do you convince those uncles, others like them, who support gun rights to now support gun control?
1: Yeah. So this is also easy um, for me. Um, So... I think the amount of gun death we've seen in the last decade is so alarming to so many people. We do not want to live in a world where we are teaching our children shelter in place drills as opposed to math drills. I, I can't, yes, I can't imagine the fear that every parent is feeling right now because the, the last shooting was families going to Walmart to do back to school shopping. That is not an America we should want to live in where there's so much anxiety and the easy access that these individual shooters have to weapons of war. In America today, we have Americans who are fueled by hate, racism, division, hunting down other people with weapons of war. So I think there is already common ground on this. I think NRA members want to ban uh, military-style assault weapons in large magazines. They want universal background checks. So someone who's on the terror watch list can't buy a weapon. I can't imagine something more common sense. And they want uh, to have an anti-federal gun trafficking law. And that last one is the easiest. It just says law enforcement can go after gun traffickers. And in a city like Chicago or a city like New York City, it's true. These weapons come up the iron pipeline. They get sold to gang members right out of the back of a truck with no opportunity for a background check because there's no federal anti-gun trafficking law. That law alone last time, we got 58 votes. We are this close. You need 60 votes to pass a law in the Senate, this close to passing it. If Mitch McConnell had uh, the courage to stand up to the NRA, we would get a vote on those three measures. And I wouldn't be surprised if all of them passed today.
0: What about buying back assault weapons? Should the federal government ban assault weapons and then force people to sell them?
1: So uh, we have a federal statute right now that mandates how we treat certain weapons of war. Um, We use it uh, requiring weapons of war like machine guns have to be registered, that you have to have a, 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 uh, you have to get your uh, fingerprints done, you have to have background checks to have access to them in any way. You could use that same statute for all military style assault weapons. Uh, I think you should make it illegal to buy or sell them because you don't want to create a black market, and it should be illegal to use them. We should pass a federal ban on assault weapons and large magazines. We've done that before. We can do it again. So I think that is the, so that is the regulatory framework, and you should have a nationwide buyback so that those people who did purchase these weapons because they're gun enthusiasts uh, could actually have them purchased back by the federal government. That is the framework you should, should use. Should force
0: people to sell them back? So
1: you would create fear if you use that language of of a debate that people don't want to have, Uh, but you can basically get it done through the combination of a, a guaranteed federal buyback combined with this mandatory registration as we use that framework for machine guns over a decade ago.
0: But if you choose to just keep your gun in your home, there's not a criminal penalty under your plan you,
1: you you could look at that but the point is if it's just in your home and you're not using it or buying and selling it there's no harm there so you want to make sure there's no black market you want to make sure um, there's no buying and selling and you want to make sure it's illegal so you can look at it you can keep all options on the table but your first step would be the regulatory framework we use for machine guns combined with a ban of assault weapons and banning the purchasing and selling and use. And I think that is the most strong and effective uh, legal framework you could create.
0: It's been well-tread territory that you've evolved on guns over the years. You were supported by the NRA when you were a member of the House. Now you have an F rating from the NRA. The real question I have is when you think about your, your history on guns, Did did your private views change over the years, or were you always against guns privately, but you just, for political reasons, were supportive of the NRA?
1: So for me, it was really pretty simple. Um, As a member of Congress uh, 10 years ago, um, I supported the Second Amendment. I still support the Second Amendment. Uh, What I recognized 10 years ago when I became a senator is that I needed to do much more, that there was gun violence and gun death all across our state, all across our country, And that as a Congress member, I should have cared what was happening in places outside of my district. Um, That's what leadership is. I recognized pretty quickly that I was wrong and that I was going to lead on this issue. And the truth is, is when you meet a family who has lost someone to gun violence, it changes you. Um, Meeting with parents of a young teenage girl named Niaja really hit me as a... Um, a moment where I recognized I wasn't leading in the way I should have been. And I made sure that those parents knew that Niasia will not have died in vain, and I made sure her classmates knew I will lift up her story uh, as a um, urgency about why we need to end gun violence and gun death in this country. And that's why I got to work with our police commissioner, with the moms group, Uh, With number of advocates on how we end gun violence and that's why I authored the federal anti-gun trafficking law because a lot of the gun violence in New York City where this young girl lost her life um, What
0: about before that senator? Columbine happened in the late 90s. Sure, I should have been. Not about what you should have been, or Mm -hmm. what were your personal views when something like Columbine happened or gun violence before 2009? Regardless of your political positioning. Yeah,
1: I've always been against gun violence and gun death, and I've always been against children losing their lives. That is who I am, and it's always been that way. Um, As a member of Congress, I should have been looking for legislative solutions to protecting those people. Uh, That's what I should have done, uh, but I have the humility to recognize when I'm wrong, which many elected leaders do not, uh, especially President Trump. Um, Imagine President Trump admitting he's wrong on anything. Uh, He neither has the humility, the wisdom, nor the courage to do that. Um, And it makes him a weaker leader. We should want a president who can admit when they're wrong.
0: You've been a leader on sexual harassment issues in in, in the military and nationally. The Franken episode uh, has gotten more attention because of a New Yorker story. What's your context, looking back, for how you handled that?
1: So... For those who remember that moment in time, uh, Senator Franken had eight credible allegations against him that were corroborated in real time. Two were since he was elected. And the eighth one, it was either seventh and eighth, but the eighth one that got my attention was a congressional staffer. And I have been working in this space for a very long time, uh, trying to end sexual violence in the military trying to end sexual violence on college campuses, trying to end sexual harassment in Congress. And I just got to the point where enough was enough, and I couldn't defend him. I couldn't defend uh, groping and uh, forcible kissing, um, unwanted groping and forcible kissing. And I uh, decided that I had to say that I couldn't support it anymore, and I couldn't support him. 34 other senators followed me, some within minutes many of whom are running for president today. It may not seem like that today because I seem to stand alone, but I would do it again because I just talked to that congressional staffer and I would stand by her today and I would do it again. Uh, It's hard. There's some Democratic donors um, who want to punish me for the behavior of Senator Franken and hold me accountable for his decisions. Um, My decision was to call him to resign. His decision was to resign, to not wait for his congressional hearing, uh, to not wait for his next election. Those are his decisions
0: and his alone. Um, Did you call on Senator Schumer to work with you on that at the time?
1: I'm not going to divulge private conversations, but I can tell you I spoke with many colleagues uh, after the 5th and 6th allegation. Um, The 5th and 6th allegations were particularly disturbing. Uh, One of the women was um, in the military, and uh, she had come forward. um, And I know what happens in the military. And I know what courage it takes uh, for someone in the military to come forward, because more often than not, their careers are ended when they come forward. Uh, They're often blamed, retaliated against. Justice is very hard, which is why I've been leading that issue. And so I personally was very concerned Uh, that this was something that was very hard for me to stay silent. And that was shared by a number of members of the Senate at the time. And we discussed it and had our own personal views about how we felt. Um, But I I remember, and, you know, our work in this space was just keep moving along. Um, We were having... um, hearings, press conferences, uh, work on military sexual assault, on ending sexual harassment in Congress. And so this is all happening at the same time, and it was a particularly disturbing time for many of us.
0: How should cases like this be handled in the future? Should the Senate wait for the Senate Ethics Committee to review? Should there be a process in place? There is a
1: process. It's a very um convoluted and poorly run process that I have been working at the time on revising to make it a better process, um, which we actually ultimately passed um, the tenets of my bill unanimously. So um, the process is that uh, you are entitled to a hearing by the ethics committee, but what you're not entitled to is the silence of your colleagues and asking members of Congress to stay silent and not to be heard on something they care as passionately about, whether we value women, whether these women who are survivors deserve someone to stand by them, that's absurd. And for our party to ask members of the U.S. Senate, particularly the women members who came forward, um, to say enough was enough, I think is an outrage.
0: You've called the allegations against Senator Franken credible. You said you recently spoke to one of the accusers Would you oppose a political comeback by Senator Franken?
1: There's always room for redemption of anybody. I I don't know why this conversation is so difficult. Um, Anyone who wants a second chance, it's always there for everyone. We're a country that believes in second chances. We believe in someone who has humility, who comes forward to say they're sorry and they have paid consequences and want to reemerge that's always there for everyone. And that's a decision for someone to make themselves. It's not my decision. It's certainly not my um, responsibility. It's for someone else to make their own judgments and decisions. But there's always a path for redemption for anybody.
0: What about for political journalist Mark Halpern, who recently signed a book deal? Many Democrats participated in his book. Does he have a path to redemption or not?
1: it's not for me to judge. It's a choice that any individual can make and they just make it. It starts with humility and a a recognition that, um, you acknowledge that you've done something wrong. People make mistakes all the time, but that acknowledgement and having some, uh, measure of, of, um, you just have to go through it. And, you know, it depends on what you're accused of and what the facts are and what the allegations are. Um, obviously, if you've committed a criminal offense, assault, rape, you may well be doing jail time. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm someone who believes in someone who has done their time in in a criminal setting, deserves to have their right to vote back. Um, it's We want paths for redemption for anyone. But, you know, these are different allegations. If it's just you've made a mistake or you've harassed someone, there's a different path. It's not a criminal allegation.
0: Do you approve or disapprove of the Democrats who participated in Mr. Halpern's book?
1: You know, I don't know enough about the allegations or why they chose to do that, and it's not my job to be the purviewer of approval or disapproval. Uh,
0: Looking at uh, the economy right now, are we heading to a recession or not? You represent New York and you you represent Wall Street, what's your read on the economy?
1: So I disagree with President Trump uh, that there's a conspiracy.
0: Um, What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I disagree with President Trump that uh, the economy is strong for everyone and that the fake news of America today is somehow misleading the American people. Just spend a day in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I was in Youngstown uh, just about a month ago uh, on my Broken Promises bus tour to talk about all the Trump broken promises, about the economy, about getting the cost of prescription drugs down, about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and went straight to the voters uh, who voted for him. Um, I was showing Democrats how I will beat President Trump. I will talk about how he lied to the American people and misled them, and I will go right to his backyard. And so as part of that, I was in Youngstown, Ohio. And I met with men and women who just lost their jobs because a GM plant decided to close the plant down. And some of them were notified by text message, having worked at a company for 20 or 30 years. I met uh, a community that's been hollowed out because of these massive job losses. Um, And they do not feel like the economy is soaring. Uh, They continue to see how bad trade deals affect them negatively and they see that their community is being left behind. And so as president, I believe um, that economy has to be our priority. It means making sure anyone underemployed or unemployed gets access to job training, using community colleges and state schools and apprenticeship programs and not-for-profits to hone their skills to have access to the jobs in their region in the fields they want. Uh, To make sure that we invest in communities that are left behind because of bad trade deals and reinvesting in them. Use the Green New Deal as a platform to actually invest in new energy markets, in wind and solar and geothermal and hydropower, in wind uh, turbine manufacturing, in solar panel manufacturing, in communities left behind. And so as president, you can marshal federal resources to go into communities that are desperate for job com- job growth and opportunity like Youngstown, Ohio. So I think President Trump just hasn't spent time talking to real people about what's going on in their lives because even in a state that has low stated unemployment rate, real unemployment's much higher and the underemployment rate is far higher than anyone has even estimated. You go to places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, you go to places like Iowa and New Hampshire, they will tell you they might have a job and they may not be counted as an unemployed, but they are deeply underemployed. And you see it on the number of people living below the poverty line. And Iowa is an example. Their unemployment rate is 2 point something, but 20% of people are, work, are living below the poverty line. There's your disconnect. They can't put together enough hours. They can't put together high enough pay to actually provide for their families.
0: Some of your rivals take pride in saying that Wall Street would fear them if they were elected president. Should Wall Street fear you if you won the White House?
1: So I believe that you need to do a lot of things differently, and there needs to be far more oversight and accountability over various financial services industries. Um, I would first repeal the Trump's tax cut, which was a massive giveaway for uh, the most elite of the elite in terms of, of, of... uh, the wealthy Americans, but also amongst the elite and most successful uh, companies you in take America. take away the whole tax cut? I would leave in place the middle class tax cuts and take away the tax cuts that went to the ultra wealthy and uh, the most successful companies. That's worth about a trillion dollars. And it's just not your biggest bang for the buck. Um, I would be investing in those employees in Youngstown, Ohio to make sure they have access to new jobs, new economies, new manufacturing in their communities so they can continue to thrive as a community. That's where I would put investment into real job training. And I would invest in national public service. I would tell every young person in this country who would like debt-free college, if you're willing to do a year of public service, we can pay for two years of community college or state school. If you're willing to do four years of public service, you could have, uh, excuse me, if you're willing to do two years of public service, you can have four years of your community college or state school paid for. That would change our country and our character Overnight, if you want an anecdote to President Trump's greed, corruption, selfishness, fear, um, smallness, the best thing to do is ask young people to spend a year or two helping others first. It'll be the greatest anecdote to the division, fear, and hate that President Trump has created.
0: You've been traveling around the country, Senator, talking about abortion rights. If you were president of the United States, what would your Department of Justice, the federal government, do from a federal level to intervene in some of these states where they're making new abortion laws, Republican states?
1: So as president, I would do four things. Uh, I certainly would only appoint judges and justices that see Roe v. Wade as law of the land, that it is.
0: A hard litmus test.
1: Women have had a constitutional right to privacy for over 40 years. It's stated law. So I just want judges that will say, this is stated law and it is precedent. President Trump, When he was a candidate, he had a list of 20 justices that he knew would overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, I think we should acknowledge that it is a basic human civil right. Second, I will codify Roe so it's not left up to the next president to try to take away women's constitutional human rights. Third, I will repeal the Hyde Amendment. Uh, which is the federal law that prohibits federal money from spending on reproductive care including abortion services that really harms low-income women it harms communities of color Uh, it's an economic issue as well as a health and a health care issue as well as a human right. and so i will repeal that and fourth I will make sure that as we pass Medicare for All, that reproductive health care services, including abortion services, are included so that no matter what state you live in, you have coverage and have access no matter what, no matter how bad your governor is, no matter how bad your legislature is, that you will have these basic reproductive
0: rights. What about critics of the position of a litmus test on on, uh, judicial nominees? What about the independence of a judiciary and the nominees to not have to give a hard answer on issues like that? It's not about
1: independence. It's about a human right. And I think with 40 years of this established precedent, it would be shocking to the American consciousness if women no longer had bodily autonomy. It would be shocking that we could not have basic reproductive rights. And I think having any other standard is a denial of what the law of the land has been for over 40 years. It would be as shocking as undermining other basic constitutional rights in this country.
0: If the situation in Hong Kong deteriorates, what the, should the U.S. do? Especially if there's some kind of military force used by the Chinese in Hong Kong, and you've studied China for a long time, learned yeah. Mandarin so, in college.
1: Yes, um, I was going to say something in Chinese, but that's too cheeky. Anyway, yeah, please, um, if you want to. it's fine. So uh, the people of Hong Kong. Uh, have lived under a different legal framework for a long time Uh, and the agreements that were made uh, with the uk uh, during the changeover were specific they've never imagined that they could be extradited to mainland china and have to uh, be um, uh, beholden to the laws of mainland china Uh, They never imagined that they would have no free speech rights. They never imagined that they would be denied basic constitutional freedoms like the right to protest. But that's actually what's happening in Hong Kong today. And so they are rightfully protesting. And we as Americans who believe in these basic human rights should be supporting them. This president has been unwilling to stand up to strongmen all across the globe, unwilling to stand up to China, unwilling to stand up to Russia.
0: What should he do, though, with Xi Jinping? He
1: should stand up to them and say, if you want to have a future with an America that will engage in you on the world stage, engage with you on economic issues, engage with you on trade, you should not cross this line. That is the power of the American government, that you can have Um, not only the bully pulpit, but you engage the world community. President Trump could be engaging with the EU, engaging with our allies across Asia to have a united front to say this violation of basic human rights should not stand, and that we expect more of you if you intend to be part of the world community. It's called leverage. It's pressure. It's what we used to do in the world. America used to be this beacon of light and hope. We used to hold our friends, allies accountable when they were wrong. President
0: Trump doesn't do that. But if the Chinese use military force, should the U.S. consider sanctions against the Chinese government?
1: Absolutely. Sanctions is the kind of tool that we have in our toolbox uh, to pressure another country when we feel like they're doing the wrong things president trump won't use it against russia he won't use it against the saudis he won't he won't even have an honest conversation uh, with the prime minister of israel and that's wrong he should be a better leader he should not be shrinking away from his responsibilities on the world stage
0: we have a couple minutes left of politics lightning round if you would indulge me for a minute one Define your current relationship with the Clintons.
1: I think that Hillary is still uh, one of the greatest role models that we have in this nation. Uh, She's inspired women and girls worldwide to dream big. Um, She has, uh, she got that 65 million cracks in that glass ceiling. And I think but for her, you wouldn't have six women running for president today. So I still consider Hillary a great role model, a mentor, and a friend. Um, And I value the Clintons and what they have done for this country in terms of decades of service to our country.
0: President Clinton?
1: Same. He has given himself and has provided leadership and decades of service to this country, and it's admirable.
0: Is it time for Mayor de Blasio to go back to the Big Apple?
1: (laughs) Um, Mayor de Blasio also has done extraordinary things for our country, uh, especially for New York City. Um, he has led on um, making sure we have universal pre K. He has led on a $15 minimum wage. Um, and I'm grateful for his service to our state and our city.
0: Congressman Kennedy in Massachusetts is mulling a primary against Senator Markey. Do you support Senator Markey's re election?
1: God bless them both. Uh, God bless them both. Um, I, w- I will likely support uh, uh, my colleague, but I think it's premature.
0: If you were not the nominee, would you be open to serving on the ticket?
1: Of course. I will do public service in all its forms. I am here because um, my faith has really inspired me to serve, uh, to make public service my life's mission. And if I'm called to serve in any capacity, I will do it.
0: Are you confident in the new Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, on sexual assault in the military issues? No. Final thing. You've called on Representative Steve King to resign.
1: As he should.
0: Over incendiary comments he made about abortion, his response, quote, odds of my resigning are the same of yours of winning the nomination for president, zero. What's your response to Congressman King and his taunt?
1: I think he should resign. His statements are outrageous. Can you read his statements for the group?
0: I don't have it right in front of me. It's
1: something like, well, I don't even want to say it, it's so outrageous, but-
0: I think that's why I didn't print it out. Yeah,
1: it's, it's not, it's, he should resign.
0: Should Republicans force him to resign?
1: Yes, they should have a backbone and stand up to someone in their own party who has said something so offensive, so harmful and demeaning to women, something harmful and demeaning to humanity, Uh, that he should be forced to resign by his party. But again, we've not seen courage or strength out of Republicans since President Trump was elected. They don't stand up to him. They don't stand up to people in their party. And Democrats should be proud of who we are, that we value women, that we believe women, that we stand with women, and that they are fundamentally part of the heart and soul of our party.
0: Senator Gillibrand, really appreciate the time you've taken to be with us here at Washington Post Live this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.